The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> uh, so first, I would just like to say how happy I am to be here again. It's been a little while. And um, I know many of you, uh, some of you through the Dharma Rocks program and the Coming of Age program that happened this last year, and some of you just because I've been coming here uh, for a long time. And some of you because I took part in a Vipassana retreat a couple of years ago with uh, Gil. And uh, Gil is uh, really uh, my Dharma brother uh, in, in many ways, not just as your Vipassana teacher, but also as a Zen teacher. So I feel very connected here. Um, and before I start, I want to say I am really excited about the prospect of your new retreat center, as I'm sure you are, and that I know that you are raising money now uh, so that once the property is in place, you'll be able to remodel. And when I saw that in your newsletter, I thought, oh, this is so great. How can I help? So today, whatever Donna you put in the box for me, half of that I'm going to donate back for the retreat center. So um, if that makes any difference in uh, what you give, uh, our generosity combined helps to make this center come true. So thank you for that. Uh, So at the end of his life, one of the very last things that the Buddha taught was in the Parinirvana Sutra. And it was called... um, the eight means to enlightenment or the eight awakenings of great beings. And it includes the following eight things. After 50 years of teaching, this this was it, culled down to its absolute essence, the Buddha's teachings. Have few desires. Know how much is enough. Enjoy serenity. Be diligent. Maintain mindfulness. Practice meditation. Cultivate wisdom. And avoid pointless talk. (laughs) I'm sure Andrea will have something to say about that at her retreat. (laughs) So today what I wanted to talk about was just the first two of having few desires and knowing how much is enough because I think obviously they are related. So I just wanted to read first of all from the Parinirvana Sutra about these two things. The first awakening is to have few desires, to refrain from widely coveting the objects of the five sense desires is called few desires. The Buddha said, monks, know that people who have many desires intensely seek fame and gain. Therefore, they suffer a great deal. Those who have few desires do not seek fame and gain and are free from them, so they are without such troubles. Having few desires is itself worthwhile. It is even more so because it creates various merits. Those who have few desires need not flatter to gain others' favor. Those who have few desires are not compelled by their sense organs. They have a serene mind and do not worry because they are satisfied with what they have and do not have a sense of lack. Those who have few desires experience nirvana. This is called few desires. 
The second awakening is to know how much is enough. Even if you already have something, you set a limit for yourself for using it, so you should know how much is enough. The Buddha said, Monks, if you want to be free from suffering, you should contemplate knowing how much is enough. By knowing it, you are in the place of enjoyment and peacefulness. If you know how much is enough, you are content even when you sleep on the ground. If you don't know it, you are discontent even when you are in heaven. You can feel rich even if you are poor. You can feel poor even if you have much wealth. You may be constantly compelled by the five sense desires and pitied by those who know how much is enough. This is called to know how much is enough. So in the Zen tradition, uh, we have a, a chant that we do that starts, uh, delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. And uh, I would say, actually, you could uh, put the word desire in there, and it would be equally true. Desires are inexhaustible. From the moment we wake up in the morning, I want, I want, I want, or I don't want, I don't want, I don't want. It's just the other side. So this was what the Buddha said. The first noble truth is the truth of our dis-ease, our dissatisfaction, our discontent, our feeling of incompleteness. But he said, the second one, you know, this is caused by thirsting desire, I want, I want, I want, aversion, I don't want, and delusion, this idea that somehow there is this permanent abiding self that is not relying on anything else in the universe, it's all alone. There's the whole universe and then there's me. (laughs) So what is the problem with desire? The Buddha saw this very clearly. It's not, and the desire to practice is a very healthy desire. So are all desires a problem? No. He's very specific. He says, thirsting desire. The desire that cannot be quenched. The desire that is grasping. So always the way I think about it, we use this word suffering, and, and really it's, it's so misleading because suffering seems like this very big thing. You know, I have to have cancer to be suffering. When, when in fact it could be, you know, as much as coming up here and finding out that there's no water. Oh dear, what if I start to cough? Ack. <laughs> all right. Because all that he's talking about is the distance between what actually is, things as they are, versus the way I want them to be. That can be a very small thing. Oh, there's no water. Mm -hmm. Or, oh my goodness, my child has run away. You know, huge. Big difference, but suffering nonetheless. So so there's a big uh, continuum of suffering. And when the Buddha looked at that, he saw, oh, I see. So... Thirsting desire, aversion, and delusion are what cause that gap to widen or lessen. And what we're always trying to do is 
lessen the gap so that we can end suffering, the cessation of suffering. So the problem with delusion in all of this, around this thirsting desire and this uh, aversion, is that sometimes we have the idea, if I just don't look at it, it'll go away. This is like believing that someone has thrown a baseball at your head at 90 miles an hour, and if you just turn your head and don't see it coming, nothing's going to happen. Well, of course something's going to happen. You're going to get hit in the head, and it's really going to hurt more than if you saw it coming and then said, okay, here comes that baseball, now what can I do? Oh, I can duck. Baseball goes by. Or I can catch it. But a lot of the time, we turn away. This is like turning away from the baseball. It's still going to get you at some point. It is still going to rock your world. So the Buddha says, have few desires and know how much is enough. Having few desires in our world, this world right here, right now in this country, and right here in the Bay Area, boy, that's pretty hard. Because there's so much out there to have. So many lovely things being offered to us and distractions and, oh my goodness, how many coffee places do I have to choose from, you know? I could go to Starbucks, I could go to Pete's, I could go to, what is it, Cafe Sportif down here? And, you know, I mean, choices are endless, desires are inexhaustible. Oh boy, Cafe Latte. (laughs) We are being bombarded at all times with delicious, juicy things. Whether it's iPods, cell phones. Yeah, it doesn't matter. There's just all kinds of stuff out there for us. And so it, as a teacher of young children, I have to admit, it makes me cringe a little to see the big SUV with the parent at the wheel with one hand here, the cell phone in the ear, the coffee cup in the other hand, and five kids in the back. Because I think, What is it we're teaching them? Oh, how many things can I do at one time? Hmm? And the value of always being plugged in. And the value of always having some food in our hand. This is what you're teaching them. Whether you say it or not, this is what they see, and therefore this is what they do. So, I thought about this knowing how much is enough because it seems to me that the only way that we can work with having few desires is understanding how much is enough. Because recently I had a conversation with two teenage girls and one of them said, it was in a conversation that had to do with their relationship with the whole, the world, the community of the world. And one of them said, well, you know, poor, there's, there's nothing wrong with being poor. And another girl got really outraged and said, well, you don't even know what you're talking about. Being poor sucks. She said, you know, being poor means you, you, like, you can't go out to dinner and, and, you, and you can't go buy books whenever you want to. And I'm thinking, this is your definition of poor? But, you know, and I didn't say anything because clearly for her it was a real issue and she really felt like she was suffering. But I thought, whoa, we don't even know what poor is anymore. 
we have so much we don't even understand. Most of the world eats rice and beans and they're lucky to get it. Not being able to go out to dinner is not being poor. (laughs) But for this girl, that's how it felt. And I think for some of us, not being able to go to Starbucks every day or not being able to go and buy that new dress or those new pair of pants, we feel a little bit, you know, underprivileged. So in order to see our desires, I think we have to figure out first what we mean by how much is enough. And I've been thinking about this a lot over the last six months because there's a class that uh, once a year I get to lecture at at Stanford. And it's a graduate program in sustainability. And this year I was supposed to come and talk about sort of Zen practice around food because that was their focus. So I've been thinking a lot about sustainability, which is a big topic right now. Everybody's talking about green and sustainability. And so I thought, oh, good, I'll think about this. Well, I thought about it. It's big. And it's really big for us as Buddhist practitioners. I mean, in some sense, we're the original green people. Okay. So when I looked in the dictionary, I looked under the word enough. Sufficient to meet a need or satisfy a desire. Oh, the problem with dictionaries, then you've got to look up the next word. <laughs> okay, satisfy, what does that mean? To fulfill a need, a desire, or an expectation. Oh dear. I believe in our Buddhist practice, enough means acceptance of what is. And not always trying to change it. You know, oh, this, this tea is good, but boy, a little bit of sugar in it would be even better. We're always, we're always trying to make it just, just a little bit better, and oh boy, this coffee would taste really good with a piece of chocolate. You know, it's just not enough to have just the coffee. All right. So a feeling of being fulfilled, full-filled with whatever is, That would be enough. So traditionally, you know, the Buddha traveled all over India in his life, walking with his begging bowl. Whatever fit in the begging bowl was what they ate that day, and that was it. It was just that one bowl. Whatever somebody had to offer. And so the Buddha was not a vegetarian, by the way, for this reason. As long as that was what the family was actually eating and that they didn't go out and kill the goat specifically for the Buddha, He ate what they were eating and was happy for it. But one bowl of food, try that sometime. You know, that's that's actually a very uh, wonderful monastic practice. One bowl of food a day. What you're going to find is you're going to be very hungry by the time it gets time for the next bowl of food. Because we are so used to eating three meals a day. But again, in many parts of the world, one meal a day is what you get. So close your eyes for just a moment. And I want you to... You don't have to answer to anybody else so you can be completely honest here with yourself. What do you actually have enough of? Do you think that you have enough money? Enough time? 
enough happiness? Do you think you have enough clarity, wisdom, compassion? Do you think you have enough freedom? What do you think you have more than enough of? So you can open your eyes. For many people, no matter how much money they are making, if you say, do you feel wealthy? They'll say, oh no, I'm not wealthy. I'm, you know, I'm comfortable, but I'm not wealthy. Oh no, I'd have to make to be wealthy. And nobody I talk to seems to think they have enough time. When you ask people how they are, one of the main ways they say, the answer is, oh, wonderful, but too busy. Most people will also say they don't have enough happiness in their life or a sense of ease. Human craving. This is what the Buddha saw so clearly wants to fulfill each and every desire as it arises, unthinkingly, just want, 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 pick, pick, pick. And this generally happens because we are not reflecting upon our desire. We're just going towards it. So, because you have a meditation practice, I know that you have had moments of pure joy, and pure ease. Even, even if your meditation is sometimes busy, noisy, agitated, I know also, because you are sitting here so quietly during the sitting before this, that you also have moments when it all drops away and you really feel a sense of ease and concentration. That is the state of enough. Right there. That's it. It's really pretty simple. But generally in our daily life, it's very difficult to take that sense of enough out into our activity. Out there, those things that make us feel joyous and at ease don't tend to last. So for those of you who are skiers, I am not a skier, but I have done a little bit early in my life. I know that there's those moments of pure joy and involvement where there is nothing but you, the skis, and the downhill race. And it's just exquisite. And during that time, you are just in nirvana, basically. But of course, the ski run ends. And maybe it's the end of the day, or maybe you didn't have a good run, or whatever. But it ends. Does your joy end at that moment? Or you save your money so that you can go out to celebrate a special occasion at a really nice restaurant. And it's one of these places that's got like five courses and they're all fabulous and maybe you have a glass of wine or something and it's wonderful while it's happening and the service is great and you just, oh, you're just enjoying it but as you're going along you're getting a little full because you're not used to eating that much food and that much rich food and, and so there's like a mixed feeling of, isn't this incredible? And boy, it's a little too much. <laughs> and then, of course, the meal is over. Does your joy end? 
when, when we put our joy and ease in sensual delights, what we see is that it's a mixed bag. It comes, it goes, maybe it comes back and then it goes again because later we have an upset stomach because we ate this really rich food that we're not used to eating. And then we're thinking, oh, really, I shouldn't have ordered that. But I paid all this money for it, so I'm going to enjoy it. However, what we see in meditation is that these periods of joy and ease and concentration can be extended until they can exist even in the middle of difficulty. Because if your ease, if your feeling of enough cannot last through difficulty, it's not going to do you much good. It's really pretty easy to be happy when everything is going well. You know, you're going down the ski run, great! Oh, this is wonderful! And then you hit a mogul, out you go, and maybe you break your leg. Can you maintain, I mean, it's going to hurt, yeah. But can you maintain your equanimity and your ease? Oh, well, here I am. I hope that the rescue team gets here soon. Yesterday, my group comes up on Saturday mornings to meet, and one of the couples came up, and their car died right in the middle of 84 on a blind curve. Fortunately, another one of my members came up behind them five minutes later and gave them her emergency electric lights so that they didn't get plowed into. And 15 minutes later, the highway patrol came up. So I talked to this uh, couple later, and and the woman said, yes, there we were, breathing by the side of the road. (laughs) She said it was a very different Saturday morning, but it was a good practice. And I thought, oh, good. This is good, because yes, it was not at all according to expectation. They could have gotten really upset, you know, had a terrible morning, and instead they had a nice conversation with the park ranger that came by, (laughs) and the sheriff, and, you know, and then they got their car towed, and they went home, and she said, you know, we never really lost our composure. Boy, I'll tell you, Buddhist teachers like to hear that. It means something's going in. This is This is good. Here's the problem for us in not enough. You see, the core delusion is actually not about not having enough. Although that's how the majority of that world out there seems to waste their time in in having enough. Buying things, getting new cars, a better house, more furnishings, whatever it is, that drives the vast majority of people's lives. But it's actually more important that you see that it's the inner experience we have of not being enough that drives that outer behavior. And I will tell you, this is the hidden agenda that is used by marketing agencies everywhere to tell you that you are not enough. That you will never be enough without their product. If you would only buy this car, everyone will admire you. If you will only take this course, everyone will know how smart you are. 
If you will only buy this outfit, everyone will see your inner beauty. This is a bill of goods that you are being sold over and over. Every time you see a piece of advertisement, and believe me, I don't know about you, but it's a little overwhelming when you drive into the gas station now and there are advertising videos going on. I mean, it's like they, they find every opportunity to get your attention. And the message over and over again is you are not enough as you are. And this is clearly false. But if you're told it over and over again, if everywhere you look it's in front of you, there is some small part of you that begins to believe it. And then you begin to want to do something about it because it makes you very uncomfortable. Or maybe it's very old stuff that is then being confirmed. Maybe in your family, in many ways, you were told you weren't enough. I mean, I laugh when I think about it now. I would bring home my report card. It would be straight A's, and in math it would be B+. And what would my mother say? Why are you getting a B plus in math? Not, wow, it's great, you got all these A's. Now, I know that my mother didn't do it to make me feel less. She was not trying to diminish me. She was trying to encourage me. But for me, what it always made me feel was, I'm never going to be enough for her. I'm never going to be able to completely please her until I get straight A's, and I'm sorry, I'm just not a math whiz. <laughs> not going to happen. I am never getting an A plus in math. So fortunately, meditation practice through the years has let me shed all that. But I remember in my teen and early 20s suffering exquisitely from feelings of not being enough. And when you feel that way, on the outside you try to present this very together image. Oh yes, me, I'm great, I'm wonderful. On the inside though, you're a mess. And you only let one or two people ever know that because it's a very vulnerable place. But in our practice, what we actually know is that fundamentally, you are perfect. We are perfect. Not in the dualistic sense of perfect and imperfect. Put that, that's, that's a value judgment. That's a concept. I'm talking about Buddhist perfection, which has to do with accepting things as they are. Everything is as it is. And your value system does not affect gravity one way or another. Gravity exists. You exist. Fundamentally, things are as they are, and that is the definition, actually, of Buddhist perfection. Things are as they are. And so what could not be perfect about that? You are as you are. And as Suzuki Roshi used to say, that doesn't mean there isn't room for self-improvement. But this is not a self-improvement program. Meditation is not meant to make you be a better person, be a nicer person. It is to allow you to see your true self. So the really crazy thing is, in this feeling of not being enough, we suffer so much 
of comparison. Do you remember, I'm sure your mother must have said this to you too, comparisons are odious. But we do it. We compare ourselves with our siblings, we compare ourselves with our friends. When we get older, we compare ourselves with our co-workers. And then feelings of envy or resentment arise or insecurity. Oh, I'll never be that smart. I'll never be that beautiful. You know, I had an incredibly beautiful older sister. She was seven years older, and at the point that she was just becoming this swan, I was the total ugly duckling. You know, she's, she's 18 and I'm 11. You know, at 18, everyone's beautiful, as far as I can tell. <laughs> at 21, it was worse. You know, I had acne, and my sister was this glorious creature. And all I could do all the time was wish I was as beautiful as my sister. Oh, beware what you wish for, because my sister was so beautiful, and it caused her nothing but trouble. And she would be the first to tell you if she was sitting here next to me, because there are expectations of beautiful people that those of us who are not that beautiful don't know about. Okay? The fact is, be happy with who you are. Don't try to be in anyone else's shoes because you are beautiful. You are smart. You are handsome. You are delightful. And the cruelest blow of all is to be separated from yourself. And this is, this is what that crazy, greedy world out there is trying to do in some sense. The cruelest blow of all is not what others do to you, it's what we do to ourselves. In not being enough, it's like we've separated into two people. There's the person, and then there's the one who's not enough. It's like the, the little stepchild. <laughs> Let the stepchild go. <laughs> it's just too painful, and it's unnecessary. So to come back to the sustainability part, Few desires and knowing how much is enough. Is that not a definition of sustainability? That's it right there. If everyone in the world had few desires and knew how much was enough, the United States would not be using 30% of the world's resources when it is only 7% of the population. That's pretty wild. Where on earth did we get the right to do this? Eminent domain? It's it's really, when you start looking at the statistics, it's a little overwhelming how greedy we are. So I don't know how many of you saw the Al Gore film, The Inconvenient Truth, but as I was watching it, the thing that really struck me was, you know, he talked about this and he talked about that, and then he came to population. And it was fascinating because, first of all, he shows this graph. And he shows how the population has increased over centuries. You know, it's just this low line, low line. And then all of a sudden, 100 years ago, poof, it spikes way up. And he shows how it's going to spike more because, of course, now we've got all these billions of people and all those billions of people are having more. And then that's it. Goes on to the next thing. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You, you didn't talk about what to do about it. You didn't say anything. He just said, oh, well, here's what's been happening and here's what's... And I I remember scratching my head because everything else he had some idea about and things to do. Well, later I talked to a friend of mine 
who happened to go to a dinner and sat across from Al Gore. It was a fundraising dinner. And he, unbeknownst to me, had had the same head-scratching wonder, and he asked Al Gore about it, and Al Gore said, oh, well, it turns out that when you start talking about population control, all those people who normally would have supported you in all those other areas don't want to support you. So you say as little about it as possible, and you hope they notice the graph. So, I won't talk about it either. (laughs) And we'll let you use your imagination as to what the solution might be. But in order to feed, clothe, materialize a consumer economy like ours, we not only ruin our own land, and go read Wendell Berry's The Gift of Good Land if you don't know what I'm talking about. We are down to the last something like three inches of topsoil in this country. We've wasted it. We've thrown it away because we changed our methods. What used to be a complete farm. You had the animals and you had the crop. And you used the manure from the animals to fertilize the crop and you used the crop to feed the animals and whatever was left over you sold. But at some point, someone got the bright idea, oh, if I just raise wheat and I get rid of the animals, I can raise more wheat. And I don't have to muck out the stalls. And then the other farmer said, oh, boy, if I got rid of the wheat crop, I could just raise animals and sell beef like crazy. But then, of course, I've got this problem with all the manure. Okay, well, I guess I could just pile it up over here and maybe I could dump it into the river that's running nearby and Okay, so first of all, we over-farmed land, and second of all, we took away the manure source, and then we had too much manure, so we didn't know what to do with that, and it started poisoning the streams. Right? It was efficient in some sense, but it was also very greedy. And it took us away from our connection to the, the cycle of life. So, but then it's not enough to ruin our own land. Now we go around the world and we ask other people to chop down their rainforest so that we can raise cattle, so that we can have beef back here in the United States. This is nuts when you think about it that way. We ask countries to grow crops because they're on the other side of the world and they can grow strawberries in December so that we can go to the store and say, Strawberries in December, how wonderful. They've been shipped all the way from Chile. So that costs air, fuel, time. They don't taste as good. And finally, and more importantly, this is the thing I love about the Japanese. There are many things that are, you know, questionable perhaps, but one thing I love about the Japanese culture is you do not eat things out of season. This is to honor the season You would no more serve strawberries in December than fly to the moon. It's honoring the season of summer to to serve strawberries. We increasingly rely on packaged goods. 
I know lots of people love going to Trader Joe's. And sometimes I buy things at Trader Joe's, but I'll tell you, everything comes in plastic containers there. We don't even want to wash our lettuce anymore. You know, we can go and have it all in a nice plastic box. It's all neatly washed, and we can come home and just drop it in a bowl, and voila, dinner. We don't want to cut our carrots or our celery. I, I'm just, it amazes me now when I go into the fresh, fresh food section, and I see all this stuff that's already been cut and put in water and ready for you to take home and eat. When I went to Plum Village, Thich Nhat Hanh's center in France, Two things I remember from that. From, I went twice, but the first time was really mind-blowing. First of all, I remember Ty talking about the use of plastic bags. He, he gave a whole Dharma lecture on plastic bags. I will never forget this because he said, you know, it may be that the plastic bag finally does wear out and it has a hole in it. But when you go to throw it away, really look at it and say to yourself, I have just increased the plastic waste by one bag. Just be very aware of every time you get one of those plastic boxes of something, whether it's cookies or lettuce or cut carrots. But then he said, you know, you could reuse all this stuff. So I dutifully, to this day, wash all my plastic bags out but then there's the whole thing, well, how much water are you using? Okay. So, in fact, all the water I use ends up in, a, in a, a bucket on one side of my sink, and then I take it outside and use it in the garden. Now, it takes a lot more time to do all this stuff, but I feel a little better about it. I feel like I'm not adding to the waste. I'm trying to understand how much is enough. Sometimes a plastic bag, after five or six uses, finally gets a hole in it. and Then I have to say, Ty, I am really sorry, but this one's got to go. <laughs> All right. The second thing I remember from that trip, though, <laughs> was going to work in the kitchen. And there was a, an American there who had been working in the kitchen for a while. And um, when he saw us come in, he said, Okay, your job today is to break the eggs into this bowl. Now, I know about Americans. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> he said, you Americans, as if he wasn't one, you Americans have a tendency to break them and then throw them out, and you don't let all the yolk get out. I want you to really make sure you get all the yolk out. To this day, I can't break an egg without <laughs> hearing his voice, get all the yolk out. But he's right. How many times have you cracked an egg and, you know, there's still some dripping and you drop it in, you know, the bucket? They understood that even that last little bit was important. It was honoring the gift given by the chicken to use the whole thing. Here is our fundamental delusion, though, about knowing how much is enough. We have been also sold a bill of goods since the 50s about time-saving devices. All right. We are always trying to save time now by rushing through an activity. So we go to the store and we buy the whole container of the pre-washed lettuce. 
And maybe we also buy something else that just requires us, you know, it comes in a package and then we just open it up and we put it in boiling water and, you know, the next thing we know, we, we get home and in five minutes we have an incredible meal to put on the table. But we have no connection to it. We haven't washed the lettuce with our own hands and dried it. We haven't chopped the vegetables and enjoyed the chopping of it. This is why some children believe that milk comes from containers. I'm not saying you need to go out and milk your own cow. But we need, we need to have a connection. We need to understand where our food is coming from, where things come from. When you drink a cup of tea or coffee, do you think about how that tea and coffee came to you? When I was in Japan, I saw all these old, old women. They are bent permanently at the waist from picking tea because to this day, most tea is picked by hand. And they, they were bent over with their heads up like this so that they could see where they were going but they would never be able to straighten their back again. I love tea. I drink tea every day. But I will never forget the image of those women and know how much human suffering sometimes goes into getting this thing that I love. So cooking is a wonderful example of understanding how much is enough. Because if just getting something on the table is what you're doing. You are missing the joy of your life. The joy is in the doing of it. The being with it. The chopping of that vegetable. Just the joy of chopping. The joy of, you know, washing the vegetables with your own hands so that by the time you sit down at the table, most of the time, if you remember from cooking, is spent actually preparing the food. The amount of time actually spent eating the food is usually quite small, right? You might might spend hours cooking and then 15 minutes later it's all gone, right? So if your only enjoyment comes with the goal, the eating, that may be 10 or 15% of your life. What happened to the other 75 or 80? We're forgetting in our, in our desire to get to our goal, in our desire to hurry off to the next thing, we forget about what was enough in that first part. What's actually enough is doing each thing for its own joy. Doing each activity for its own joy. I'm a, most of you, I'm sure, drove here today Usually when we're driving as an adult now, not as a, and not as a teenager, mm-hmm. as an adult, we're driving to get somewhere. And in our mind, we're already there as we're driving. Oh, okay, oh, could you get out of the road? I'm, I'm trying to get somewhere. You know? Oh, this person on 84 is just going so slow. We're already there. We're not in the car. We're driving it. That's kind of scary, but we're not there. A teenager has a completely different view. A teenager, if you remember when you were, 
drives for the pure joy of driving. They don't care where they're going. They're behind the wheel. That was the other thing one of my teenage girls said last weekend when I said, well, what's the thing you're most looking forward to as an adult? And she said, driving. (laughs) There's joy. (laughs) But we're so used to it. And this is the problem as we get older and older with anything we do repetitively, making meals, cleaning the house, you know, brushing our teeth, While you're brushing your teeth, what are you doing? You're probably thinking about where you're going after you brush your teeth. Just brush your teeth. Enjoy the feel of those little brushes on your... It feels really good, you know, get it all the way back on either side. Be there for your life. Then you will understand what it means to be enough. Your every moment of being in this body, in this mind, actually is enough. And when you can really stay in that place, you will have great ease. And then you will really understand these these eight awakenings that the Buddha encapsulated at the end of his life. In order to have few desires, we really need to understand in our own life how much is enough. But of course, to understand how much is enough requires, first of all, wisdom and clarity. And so then the Buddha went on and said, well, to have wisdom and clarity requires you to do something and it's what you're doing here. Have a practice. Meditate continuously and then carry it into your life with mindfulness. Create some inner space for that wisdom and clarity to arise. And every time you see a want arise, ask yourself, is it really necessary? Do I already have enough? Am I enough? Because I think you are. Thank you. (laughs) 